As we continue to worship and turn our attention to God's Word, I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts 17, 1 through 9, which will be our primary text this morning. But as we continue in the narrative lectionary, there's something interesting we're going to do for a few weeks here. Acts 17 is um, part of Paul's missionary journey when he was in Thessalonica and the church was established and built there. The other, what I would call a companion text or a secondary text, is 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10. And so we're going to start just by reading Acts 17, 1 through 9, um, but maybe tear off a corner of your bulletin and put it in 1 Thessalonians 1, um, for we'll get there just a little bit later on. Acts is the first book after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then 1 Thessalonians. There's two of them, so find the first one, um, but they're a little bit later in the epistles after Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. The mnemonic for that is General Electric Power Cord, in case you were wondering. Before we go to God's Word, let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Illumine your scriptures to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. May our hearts be hospitable to what you have to speak to us. May in our lives, in our minds, and in our thoughts, may we make room and create space for you to be at work within us. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Acts 17, 1 through 9. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, They came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. And they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hospitality is making space in our homes, at our tables, and in our conversations. This is a working definition of what hospitality can be creating space, making room in our homes, at our tables, and in our conversations. 
doesn't mean that your home doesn't belong to you anymore. It does, but it's used to glorify God in hosting. It doesn't mean that your table has to be invaded by others, but rather it's a place to invite others. And it doesn't mean that in your conversations you have any less conviction about what you believe, but hospitality and conversation is to simply make space. That those who disagree with you can actually have the space to do so. Hospitality is creating space in our homes, at our tables, and in our conversations. I I grew up with this definition of hospitality lived out in a way that made sense to me. Whenever there was a request from church, if there was a traveling group coming through, uh, we would always host people overnight. I actually got to meet Northwestern College students years before I felt God's call to ministry, before I even considered going anywhere except for Purdue. And I got to meet these students because we hosted them. We made space in our home. And admittedly, it wasn't even that hard. There wasn't much sacrifice to be made other than the fact that I had to sleep in the basement, which didn't bother anyone except for me. There was space created in our home. I remember when I was in 11th grade, a junior in high school, uh, the Words of Hope um, board of directors was meeting in DeMott, Indiana, in my hometown. And so the local churches were asked, find places to host people so that we don't have to pay for hotels because, you know, we're cheap. So find places that we can host people. And that's the way it should be. There should be homes that can make space for guests. And so in 11th grade, I remember having three pastors stay with us. And so once again, I was in the basement. But I met this one particular pastor whose name was Abram Block. He's Canadian. And although I would say he towers over me in his presence, he's about five foot two. Um, And so as a junior in high school, I met Brahm as he goes by. And uh, Brahm gave me all kinds of grief because I was leaving to go visit with some friends. And he gave me a lecture about being careful when I went out to party, uh, which was not at all what I really had in mind. That was in 11th grade. And then in 19th grade, which is four years college, three years seminary, in 19th grade, eight years later, I ran in at the seminary to this Canadian pastor who looked so familiar. It was Brahm again. Eight years later, and he still remembered staying at my parents' farm, and I still remembered the lecture he gave me about behaving. Eight years later, hospitality, the practice of opening homes and making room at tables and in conversations, yielded all of these just fun fruits that we got to enjoy for years to come. I got to know Brahm in a way that I did simply because we got to enjoy having him at our house. Room was made. But what I would note is that there wasn't much sacrifice involved in any of these acts of hospitality. These were very safe, uh, like-minded people that were staying with us, Northwestern College students, uh, Boards of Hope directors, So there is some, you know, just logistic moving around. The kids sleep in the basement. There's extra food to make. But there wasn't any real sacrifice involved in this. It was a practice of hospitality, but maybe it was like the dress rehearsal for the more ambitious tasks of hospitality. When I was in college, away from home, 
my parents were empty nesters. They received a new challenge of hospitality. And I have permission to tell this story, so I'm not changing names either. But this woman named Tammy. My dad had gotten to know Tammy because she was a waitress at a local diner where a group of men met for a Bible study. And so over the course of a few months, my dad had gotten to know Tammy decently well, but just as a server, at a distance. But it became very apparent at one point that Tammy was in a lot of trouble. Um, There was a mess of things going on in her life. Um, Finances were in a very poor spot. Um, She was medically having a lot of new challenges and didn't have the money to pay for it. And further on to that, she had um, an ex-husband who was um, belligerently harassing her. She needed a safe place to be. She couldn't afford to be anywhere. And God laid it on my parents' heart that they should take Tammy in. All of a sudden, there's a lot more sacrifice involved in the hospitality Because in most of the other instances of hosting people, we know when they're going to leave. We know about what to expect from them. And there probably won't be that many surprises other than a few good jokes around the table. But when Tammy came into my parents' lives, they didn't know for how long this would be. They didn't know her that well, really, to know what to expect from her. They didn't know what, her, what my parents' relationship with Tammy meant for this guy out there who was, who was causing her problems. They didn't know any of these things. And there were voices of caution who told my parents, you sh- probably should think this through again. You maybe shouldn't do this. Because you don't know where this is going to lead. You don't know how this is going to end. When we think about what's really uncomfortable for us, maybe what we're not willing to give up right away, that is the space where we find sacrificial hospitality. When we look at the things that we're not sure if we want to give up, the comfortable rhythms of how our lives go, we're not sure if that room should really be lent out to someone who we don't know what it's going to mean for us. When we consider the things that we're not willing to give up, That's where we find true sacrifice. Sacrificial hospitality means opening our homes, creating space at our tables and in our conversations for those who maybe are a little bit less comfortable to be around, for those who we don't know what amount of sacrifice it will actually cost us. My parents let Tammy stay with them for several months. And there were some interesting challenges. There were some humorous moments. But it was good. It was sacrificial hospitality. And there's a lot more to the story that I could go into and some of the unique challenges and and reasons why people said, see, Bill and Bev, this was a bad idea. But they stuck to it. And maybe suffice it to say, the conclusion of that story is that Tammy was here at North Holland, for Adriana's baptism a few weeks ago. And she was here with her husband, whom she's been happily married to for three or four years now. Um, Hospitality of memory is lacking for me right now. But she was here, and she still considers herself a part of our family. 
she claims my parents as her own parents. And she will tell you that it's part of her testimony that God was at work in creating space for her at a time in her life when there was nowhere else to go. And very few who would dare take a chance on sacrificial hospitality and opening up their home, their table, and their lives for Tammy. That story has a pretty good conclusion to date. There's something to celebrate there, just like there's things to celebrate with what's happening with Barnabas. But not all stories of sacrificial hospitality end well. Sometimes we get hurt. Sometimes we get taken advantage of. And sometimes pulling on the thread of the need that we see only leads us to an unraveled tapestry of so much more need than we ever anticipated finding. Sacrificial hospitality costs us something, and it's unpredictable. Jason, in Acts 17, experiences some negative consequences from showing hospitality to Paul and Silas and his companions. Because remember, Paul, even though he was not one of the original 12, Paul is a disciple of Jesus. And so he practices discipleship in the same way that Jesus told the disciples to in Luke 9. In, verse, in Luke 9, 3, Jesus told his disciples, "...take nothing for the journey." No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. It was the house of Jason in which they were going to stay until they left that town. Paul continues to practice ministry in the same way that Jesus taught his disciples to practice ministry. And so Jason hosts these guests. And I think there was probably a lot of the fun aspects of hospitality As Jason and the other number of converts build, can you imagine how much fun it would be, the joy, the great joy of being the one to host these people in your home, to hear about what God was doing, how Christ was transforming people's lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, that there was something new happening and that God was doing big and exciting things in the world. Jason got to experience the fun part of hospitality. But then he also experiences the sacrifice of hospitality the unpredictable and unfair consequences of doing the right thing. Because some Jews were jealous, and so they rounded up some bad characters, some rabble-rousers from the marketplace. These Jews are the synagogue leaders. They're the ones who are in charge, and they are jealous. They're threatened by Paul and Silas and this message about the one who is the Christ. And so... They round up some bad characters. They start a riot. It's interesting that their primary tactic when they come before the council is to use Caesar's decree that he's the only king as their way to antagonize and implicate Jason and the people that are staying with him. In verse 7, they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And this is coming from religious Jews. This is coming from synagogue leaders who would pray the prayer, Melech HaOlam, King of the Universe. Good. I had to test my Hebrew. The ones who claim that 
the Lord is king are saying that Caesar's decree is what should make Paul and his companions in trouble with them. Whatever happened to their belief and conviction that God is the sovereign king over the whole universe? And yet, that is their, that is their tactic to implicate Paul and his companions. And so, the crowd is stirred, the riot has started. And the one who has shown hospitality, the one where everyone knows that they're staying in Jason's house, Jason's house becomes the target. They can't find Paul or his companions, so they have to settle for Jason as next best thing. And Jason is brought before the council. He's fined. He has to bail himself out of trouble for disturbing the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, with what would be called a religio illicita, an illegal religion. Jason, who has done nothing except for host people, Jason, who has simply used his spiritual gift of sacrificial hospitality for Paul and his companions, now has to pay a fine for doing nothing wrong at all. And he could try to argue it, couldn't he? I mean, he could appeal to a higher court. He could try to explain that this was unfair and that there was more people with him and that this riot was a a complete sham. He could try to do all those things, except the more that he tries to argue that he's in the right and this, this riot is in the wrong, the worse it's going to make him look and the more harm that it will do to the reputation of the church because that will only fuel the riot. And so Jason pays it. Jason, whose only crime was showing hospitality, posts bond and is allowed to go so long as nothing else happens. Jason takes one for the team. And it's not fair And it's not right, and it's not fun. It's not the joyful part of hospitality. But was it worth it? Would Jason have regrets about the implications that his hospitality caused him? Would he regret opening his home, his table, and his conversations to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Was it worth it? Maybe the best way to wonder if it was worth it is to look at the fruit that it yields. And so now I want us to turn our attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul is now writing to the church in Thessalonica, writing from a distance, as he has not been able to get back to Thessalonica, so he'll write them another letter. But Paul writes this letter to the church at Thessalonica to this group of believers that has apparently grown and flourished even though their exit strategy was pretty abrupt and that Paul and Silas had to be quickly get out of the city before more trouble happened. But this is what Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, to the church where Jason is, to the church that showed him sacrificial hospitality. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
pause there for a second before we continue. Thankfulness for this church, for this group of believers, and their work produced by faith. Not works in place of faith, not works just because we need to be busy, but work produced by faith. Your labor prompted by love. Not a begrudging task, not something we dread doing, not hospitality that we regret showing because of the cost, but the labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope. Endurance, persistence, perseverance, continuing on even when the road is difficult. And that endurance is not a blind and foolish endurance. It's not driving towards the cliff hoping there will be a bridge. The endurance is inspired by hope in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit and the ministry of Jesus Christ that produces the hope that the church in Thessalonica has that feeds their endurance. Continuing at verse 4. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Pause again. You welcomed the message. You had hospitality. You made space in your conversations to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You welcomed the message. And in the midst of what? In the midst of severe suffering. Not because it was easy or convenient. Jason could testify that there was not ease or convenience It was not free of consequences to give hospitality to this message and the people who brought it. But you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And going just into the first verse of chapter 2, you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. Was it worth it? Our visit to you was not without results. Paul has been waiting for this opportunity because in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10, Paul's given a vision of a man in Macedonia asking him to come to Macedonia to preach the gospel. Thessalonica is the capital city of Macedonia. The region of Macedonia and Achaia, Thessalonica is the centerpiece of it all. If something happens in Thessalonica, it's going to spread to Macedonia, and it even spreads to Achaia. I'm trying to think of a good equivalent. 
of if we were trying to reach all of Michigan, we'd have to find the most important city in the whole state. Maybe it's Zealand. I don't know. But what starts in Thessalonica has results throughout all of Macedonia and Achaia. And the hospitality of the believers, like Jason, who welcomed Paul and his companions into their homes, at their tables, and made space for the conversations so that Paul could prove to them that Jesus was the Christ. This all serves as a starting point, and the witness of the church spreads to the whole region because of sacrificial hospitality in Thessalonica, in the home of Jason, who had to pay a fine. The results continue. In Acts chapter 20, verse 4, Aristarchus and Secundus of Thessalonica are mentioned. There's people who are on the move who have been called by God. As Paul tells them in 1 Thessalonians, they have been called by God to follow Jesus. Hospitality opens our hearts and our homes. It's simply creating space. And so maybe we do have to challenge ourselves and wonder, what would God do if I were willing to open my home, make space at my table, or create room in my conversations just a little bit more? What's the, what's the line that's drawn where I don't want to go too much further than this? And maybe it's worth considering going just one step further than that to challenge ourselves and our vision of hospitality to go just one step further than where we find ourselves comfortable to see what God will do in that space. Now make no mistake, non-Christians can also show hospitality. I've received hospitality from non-Christians. They can also create space in home, at table, and in conversation. In fact, the Jews in Thessalonica had to do just that. Non-Christians can also show hospitality. But what sets us apart is not the ability or profoundness with which we open our homes and tables and conversations, but rather is the fact that we do, th- we do so with a theocentric lens, a God-centered focus. Because hospitality is not an ends in itself. Hospitality is creating space for the ways in which God is at work. Consider a vision statement of this church intentionally sharing the love of Jesus through compassion-filled hospitality. Sacrificial hospitality is the vehicle by which we make space for Jesus Christ to be at work. And, And if we are evangelical people, meaning we are people who want the world to be evangelized, we want the whole world to hear about Jesus Christ. If we are evangelical, it means that we want to see people come to Jesus, which means we want them to come around this table, want them to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to come around this table, the Lord's Supper, where all who have been called by God are welcome to come and receive this means of grace by which our faith is strengthened. But if we want people to come to this table, do we need to invite them around our own dinner tables first? If we want to talk to people about our faith in Jesus Christ and have fellowship with them as believers, do we need to make space 
to hear from them and to be able to pay attention for what God might already be up to in their lives. And maybe in our homes, if we want to see people in in this sanctuary, in this house of God, invitation into our own homes is the necessary first step. And it might be uncomfortable. It might be out of the ordinary. And we might not be able to predict, how much sacrifice will this take us? But if we go one step beyond where we feel comfortable, do we trust? Do we really trust with deep conviction that God will use our efforts, that God will be up to something in our midst? My friends, if we want to see people in this house, at this table, and involved in these conversations, it starts with sacrificial hospitality in our homes, at our tables, and in our conversations. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. God, the example of sacrificial hospitality was set first by your Son, Jesus Christ, who gave his very life so that we may know your great love, so that we may have the hope and promise of salvation in your name and by your blood. Lord, for your sacrificial hospitality, we give you thanks and praise. And pray that we may go and do likewise, that we may make space for you and make space for our neighbors, and in so, do, and in so doing, fulfill the law. That we may love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we may love our neighbor as ourselves.